Lord, we, we thank you for this, this time to come and to worship you, to be reminded of your love. Lord, many of us come to you this morning broken, heavy with the burdens of life, weighed down by the stresses thrown at us by this world, Lord, not sure how we can go on. I pray that you would lead those of us who feel weighed down by those things. Lead us to the cross this morning, Lord. Remind us of your love. Lord, I just pray that all of us would be reminded of your love, Lord. Some of us come here this morning very comfortable, and maybe too comfortable. We've, we've lost sight of you and we've started to rely on ourselves, Lord. I pray that you would lead us to the cross as well. To see what you've done for us. To see love poured out for us. Lord, this morning I just, I pray that none of us would leave this place without knowing the love of God. How great the Father's love for us, Lord. I pray that we would all be reminded of that, Lord, that we would be brought to our knees, Lord, that you would drain us of ourselves and fill us up with your spirit this morning, Lord. Help us to honor you in our lives. Help us to glorify you, Lord, and help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back, Lord. Too often we turn back to the things of this world. We lose sight of you because of the storms of life. We feel like it's too much and we, we start to sink, Lord. I pray that you would help us not to turn back but to keep our eyes on you. Lord, the, the things of this world are so tempting, shiny, and we, we want to run after them. But Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you. Help us not to turn back the cross before us, the world behind us. Lord, help us to follow you in all that we do. And in Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome again. Good morning again. <clears throat> Um, we are, uh, today we're going to have communion, um, so later towards the end of the service, um, we'll have some instructions for you. If you've been here, then you know we do communion a little bit differently than, uh, most places. Uh, we'll kind of form a circle around the auditorium here, and if, uh, if you do not want to participate, then as the cups go around, just don't take a cup, just let it go. And we uh, will know that's our sign that you're just going to observe and watch and promise nobody's going to give you dirty looks or anything. Um, but if you do want to partake of communion, just make sure you have a cup. And then as uh, those serving communion go around, they'll know to, to give you communion. Uh, we're going to, if you've been with us the past few weeks, you know we've been going through Esther. Pastor Mark has been uh, kind of taking us through that book. We're going to take a little bit of a break from Esther today. Um, and today is Valentine's Day. I, so happy Valentine's Day to you all. Um, I wore my red so that I would be in fashion. Um, my wife dresses me, so. Um, 
I, I can't really take credit for this, but um, I see a lot of red out there. So you guys got the memo that today's Valentine's Day. And um, I wanted to, to focus just on this idea of the love of God. I mean, it seems um, love, Valentine's Day, it seemed like a layup for me uh, today. And hopefully you, you caught on to that theme throughout the songs. And I think as Christians, as churchgoers, we can kind of become numb to that idea that God loves you. We hear it so much that it becomes, it can almost become meaningless. It loses its, its value that the God of this universe loves you. Loves you. That's a big deal. And I think a lot of times we just take it all in stride. Yep, God loves me. All right. And then we continue on with life. But um, for myself and for you all, I wanted to hopefully bring that back up again and let that be made known to you anew. Let that challenge you. Let that change you this morning. Um, I'm going to start with a, a story. How many of how many men do we have here today who have asked um, a father for their permission to marry their daughter? We have a few of you, a couple. All right, it's all right. If maybe I guess those who didn't raise their hand, they said no. So you you're embarrassed to to say yes. Well, um, that's an intimidating thing to go through. If you've been through that process, um, there. It's humbling. You're kind of at, you have no power at this moment. You're at the mercy of your future father-in-law, which I don't think many of us, like, really are looking forward to not having any power and to be left to his decision. And that, this custom of asking uh, permission to marry the daughter, it, maybe it's starting to feel a little old-fashioned in today's culture. Um, but I think I think it's, a, it's an important step for a man to take. It's kind of a, a rite of passage for a young man to go through in seeking to become married. And I, my hand was up, I went through this process. Leah and I were dating for about two years, and I knew she was the one that I wanted to marry, and I even, I picked out a ring, I started making payments on it, and that was difficult enough to do. Um, but then I knew there was still one very important step left. I had to ask her father for permission to marry her. And uh, many of you know Leah. Not many of you know my father-in-law. Super sweet guy. Awesome. Uh, We have always gotten along, but I'm not the most, not always the warmest person, you know. Um, I'm not, me and him never really spent any time together one-on-one before. When we were together, everything was fine, but I wasn't calling him up on a Friday night to see if he wanted to go out. Like, we we never really spent time. So I was like, this is going to be tough. Like, just me calling him on the phone is going to be weird. Like, I've, I haven't done that before, I don't think. And uh, I knew as soon as I asked him to, you know, I, that I wanted to meet up with him, uh, he would know what I was going to do. Um, and I, I just, I didn't know how this process was going to play out. Um, so I, I was working actually at another church at the time, and I was uh, driving home, and I, I left, and I went around the corner, and I just pulled into an empty parking lot, and I sat there, and I kind of like, I pumped myself up. I'm like, we're going to do it. We're going to call him today. He's going to pick up, and you're going to say, Bob, 
I want to go out to dinner with you sometime. You pick the place. We'll go. We'll set it up. We'll get it all good. And so I was like taking deep breaths and I'm getting myself all worked up to do it. And uh, I call and I get his voicemail. And uh, I'm like, all right, this is okay. Uh, I didn't leave a voicemail. I'm like, I want to I actually talk with him. So uh, I go home and I stop again outside of my parents' house and uh, I call him again. And I get his voicemail again. And this time I left a message because I was actually um, going to hang out with Leah. I was going to see Leah. So I'm like, let me just leave a message so he doesn't call me back when I'm with her. And she's like, why is my dad calling you? Uh, and so I left him a message. And eventually, uh, I'll fast forward a little bit into the story. We were able to connect. We were able to um, set up a time and a place. And I told him, you pick a place wherever you want to go. And he picked Chili's. Now, my friends make fun of me for this. They're like, you took him out to Chili's to ask? Like, you couldn't have gone somewhere nice? You're going to actually like, splurge on Chili's. Good for you, Dave. And I'm like, no, it's, it's not me. Like, he picked the place. It's not my fault. Um, so we go and, and we meet. And I, I didn't have, like, a speech planned out. Um, I didn't know exactly what I was going to say. But I knew that being a server, I, was a, um, I used to work in... I've worked in several different restaurants. So I was a server. I know how servers work. And I just don't like awkward things. So I'm like, I'll wait for our server to get our drink order and our food order. Then he'll be out of the way. Then I don't have to ask my father-in-law for his permission in front of someone else. It's hard enough, just the two of us. Um, well, I never got that opportunity. Um, we sat down. I, I'm pretty sure like as soon as we sat down, my now father-in-law Bob, just started talking about how great he thinks me and Leah are together and just kept going. And my, I don't know what my face looked like, but this was not what I expected to happen. I, you know, I have a daughter now. I don't plan on being as nice as my father-in-law was. Um, he was very gracious to me and my face must have showed my surprise. And he said, this is what you want to talk about, right? You want to marry my daughter? And I was like, yes, 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 yes. That is why I'm here. Yes, you're right. That is, that is what, it, what I'm, I'm here to do. And uh, he continued to just say how much uh, him and his wife would be happy for me to be a part of the family and to love me and blah, blah, blah. And it felt nice and it was good. And then I was like, all right, sports, let's talk about that. Um, but we, I, I had to go through that process, to enter into the role of Leah's husband, that was, I made it way more difficult in my mind. The actual experience was very simple. Um, but I kind of built up how difficult this would be. But to, it's something I had to do to get to the role that I wanted, the role of being Leah's husband. And when you're married, you have a, a role to fulfill. And the Bible, not all of us are married. Not all of us are, maybe some of us here won't ever be married. I don't know. But the Bible calls us, as believers, the bride of Christ. And so this picture is painted throughout the New Testament by Christ himself uh, alluding to his people, his disciples, and his followers being his bride. Paul paints this picture in Ephesians chapter 5 of Loving that husbands should love their wives as Christ has loved the church. And so this picture is painted 
of Christians being the bride of Christ. And as the bride, we have a role to fulfill. So we're going to talk about that role this morning. But the idea of God being groom and the people of God being his bride, while really made clearer in the New Testament because of Christ, it, that picture is, for, is introduced to us in the Old Testament. And we're going to, uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Hosea chapter 1, uh, well, Hosea chapter 1 for a little bit and then chapter 3. But uh, throughout the Old Testament, there's this picture of God being in a covenant with his people, that there's a covenant agreement, that I will do this and you will do this for me, and, and marriage is a type of covenant. And so that picture starts in the Old Testament. And sometimes it's just alluded to, but Hosea is a place where this marriage is depicted uh, very vividly. And so we're going to look at Hosea uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 2, and those verses uh, should be on the screen for you if you do not have your Bibles this morning. So Hosea 1, 2 to 9 says, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved, for I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. After she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Am-I, which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. So, a nice, uh, warm, feel-good message this morning, right? Uh, so here's Hosea, who is a prophet of God. And, and I would imagine for a, a Jewish boy living in that time, to be called by God, to receive a message from God, would kind of be a bit of a dream, something that, that God would use me to, to grow up and be like Moses or Abraham or Joshua, some of the heroes of the Jewish faith. And so Hosea probably grew up hope, just dreaming, not even hoping like it would be realistic, but just, just dreaming of God one day using him. And God speaks to him and he says, go marry a promiscuous woman. The NIV is being nice and generous to Gomer here. Um, the ESV, the King James, every, most other uh, translations use the word prostitute or a harlot. Um, God tells Hosea to go and marry a prostitute. What is God doing here? What is God's plan? Why, I don't even know what could be going through Hosea's mind. Why, why me? Can someone else 
do this. Or we get it, God, we've been an adulterous people. We'll stop. Like, just give me that message. I'll tell the people that. You don't have to use me as this illustration. But that's what God does. He calls Hosea to do this. And I don't know what internal battles Hosea was having. But in verse 3, it just says, so he married Gomer. So he was obedient to God's call. Despite God's call being a difficult one, an uncomfortable one, one that would probably bring the judgment of other people on him as the man of God to be marrying this woman? What are you doing with her? All this judgment that Hosea would have to deal with, he is obedient to God. And he probably has hopes of a family with this woman. Now this is what God has called me to do. Let's make the best of it. And they have three kids. And if you caught on to their names, um, interesting names, uh, you might think you have a weird name, but imagine being called not loved or not my people. Um, God is using Hosea's family to illustrate his relationship with Israel. That the nation of Israel has been an adulterous people. That they have cheated on God. And so now Hosea is living that out as a very vivid picture of what's happening. Um, a real life example of the way God feels. So then in chapter 2 of Hosea is uh, just some, it's an actual like declaration of God's warning to the people of Israel. But the, the part of the message that I, or part of Hosea that I really want to focus on is in chapter 3. We don't get all of the details concerning Hosea and Gomer's relationship. Uh, we know that they had three kids. For a little bit, at least, it seems like uh, Gomer is around. She, it says that she weans the three kids, so she's bringing them up. She's raising them. But then we get to chapter 3, verse 1, and we see this. The Lord said to me, me being Hosea, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turned to other gods and loved the sacred raisin cakes. So we don't know what happened, but here God speaks to Hosea again and says, Go, go and show your wife love again, even though she's now with another man. What happened is Gomer returned to her life. What she was before she married Hosea, she went back to that. She was a prostitute, and now she is back in prostitution. And God tells Hosea to go and find her. Go and pursue her. Where does that search even start if you're Hosea? Think of the shame that you feel. Being the man of God in Israel. Being the prophet of of Israel, and here you are having to look for your wife has returned to a life of prostitution. The fear of what you might find, the anger that you would feel on that search, the worry of what you'll find as you begin this search. But God says, Go, find your wife, show her love as I have shown Israel love. Hosea is to pursue his wife because he 
in this story has been cast in the role of God. God is the pursuer. God is pursuing you. This time God was pursuing Israel. And so he tells Hosea to go and find your wife. Go to the places that you've been told to never go to before. Look down the streets that no one dares to be seen. What would be going through Hosea's mind? A man of God to be seen in places that he shouldn't be seen. Then in in verse 2, we see the first few words are, So I bought her. He found her, and he bought her again. She was his. She was his wife. Could you imagine finding her in the possession of another man? And saying, I'm here for my wife. Well, this is her cost. Her cost? But you don't understand. She's mine. She's my wife. I don't care who you think she, she is. This is her price. So he paid. He paid the price for the one who was already his. Hosea is the pursuer here. The role he's been given is the same role that God plays in your relationship with him. God is the pursuer. In Romans 5.8, Paul tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God did not wait for you to clean yourself up and to come to him. God has been chasing after you. He's been pouring out his love on all creation since the beginning of time. And this shown most in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And God is still pursuing you even to this day. For those who have already accepted him, he continues to call you into deeper relationship with him. A more intimate relationship. Cast all your cares upon him. Allow him to govern your steps. God is still pursuing you and longs to be pursued by you. He calls you to walk by faith, not by sight. Not to keep your eyes on the the storms of this world, not to be weighed down by them. Don't let your circumstances lie to you about the love God showed for you on the cross. A lot of times the things that we go through in life tell us that God isn't with you. God doesn't love you. God doesn't care. If he cared, he would do this. But we know, we have faith that once and for all, God showed you how much he loves you. By sending his son to die for you. By paying the price. So now he calls you to seek first his kingdom. To love him with all of your heart, soul, and mind. Our relationship with God doesn't end at salvation any more than my relationship with my wife ended at our marriage. If we got married and I was like, all right, I'm your husband, and then never talked to her again, that, would, that wouldn't be a marriage. That wouldn't be, that's not how our relationship works. That's not how relationships work. Instead, we have to work to continue to pursue one another, continue to get to know each other, talk with each other, learn to love one another more. And this is what God wants from us. We can struggle with him. We can fight with him. But we need to be pursuing 
instead of running away. And so Hosea is this picture of God continually pursuing his wife, even though she is chasing after other men, other things. She's going back to her old life. God, through Hosea, Hosea is pursuing her. And God is pursuing you. Gomer, Hosea's wife, had failed to fulfill her role as a faithful wife to Hosea. She didn't struggle with him. She didn't fight with him. She didn't strive to understand what it would mean to be in a healthy relationship with him. Instead, she just ran away. If they had a rocky relationship, but in the end, they were seeking to understand each other, I think that would change things. All couples have fights at time. There are disagreements. And we don't just sweep it under the rug, pretend like it doesn't happen. We don't run away. We, you got to get into it sometimes. And you have to seek each other. You don't fight with each other. You fight for each other. But Gomer had no interest in doing this. We don't know the details of what happened, but she leaves Hosea and she returns to her life of prostitution. And so this, her running away, her abandoning her role, came at a great price to Hosea. He literally had to pay for her again. But that was probably the least of his worries, was the financial cost to get his wife back. Think of the emotional toll it must have taken. The explanation to your three kids. The sleepless nights where thoughts of where your wife could be and who she could be with were probably far too close to reality. Then to bring her back home. How is that relationship going to be restored? Gomer failed to fulfill her role. She's an example of what not to do. But here's where this story starts to punch me in the gut a little bit. Gomer's an example of what not to do, but she's an example of me. She's an example of you. She's an example of the bride of Christ. We have a role to fulfill. And far too often, instead of even struggling to understand what that means, we just run away. And we run back to the life that we knew, to where we are comfortable, regardless of how messy and dirty it is. It's what we know, so we run back to it. And we all have roles to fulfill in, in all areas of life. Uh, we have roles as spouses. We have roles as parents, as employees, as an employer, as students, as athletes, as musicians. Uh, we have roles within social circles. You know, you're expected to be a certain way. Um, maybe you're the funny one, the reliable one, or whatever. But we all have roles that we are supposed to fulfill. And as soon as you take a role, you're expected to, to meet the requirements of that role. And when you don't, then we appeal to that. You're the husband, start acting like it. You're the captain, start acting like it. You're the boss, now act like it. And so when we fail to fulfill our roles, we're called out. Those roles are appealed to. And in most areas of life, the pressure to fulfill and meet expectations drives us. That's the patterns of this world. 
to be a success, to meet expectations, to try hard, to better yourself, find it within yourself to be better, to fulfill this role, to meet the expectation. And we carry that attitude of it's all on me into our spiritual life as well. And that is too great a burden to bear. And so we end up like Gomer. We go back to what we know because we can't seem to live up to the expectations that we think God has for us. We're ashamed of the things in our past. We're ashamed of the mistakes in our present. And we assume God must be mad at us because I'm mad at me. So, of course, God is mad at me. And so instead of dealing with that, instead of getting into it with God, trying to figure out where your relationship stands, we run. We run away. We run to the things of this world. So if our own efforts aren't doing it, then how do we become the spotless bride of Christ? That is to be presented to him at the end of time. How do we get there? I don't know about you. I'm not spotless. I don't think we as the collective church, the bride of Christ, are spotless. So how do we become this spotless bride of Christ? Throughout the New Testament, Paul seems to think that it's already happened. He talks about it in the past tense. Behold, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And that is an encouraging verse, but it can be confusing too. The old is gone. The new has come. That doesn't really line up with reality. The old is gone. The new has come. It feels like the old is hanging on for all it's got. It feels like at best the old is slowly fading away and with enough time the old will be gone. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says the old is gone. It's happened already. You are a new creation. But we continue to act like Gomer. We so easily leave the one who loves us and we go back to our old ways. Like Israel, uh, it says that they turned to other gods and loved the, the sacred raisin cakes. They loved the things that the world was able to give them. And we do that. We desire the stuff of this world. We leave the one who loves us. We leave the God who is pursuing us. And we seek for purpose and meaning through, uh, through our jobs. That if I can just get this promotion. If I can just make this amount of money, then I'll be okay. Then I'll be fine. But we seek first those things. And once I get those, then I'll have time for God. Then we can be in relationship. But right now, I need to figure this out. We seek purpose and meaning in academic achievements, in sports. Or maybe you feel like you've missed your opportunity, so now you're seeking to find purpose through your child through making them into who you want them to be. And if you can be a success as a parent, then you can be successful. But right now, you're seeking your child first. You're not seeking first your relationship with God. And so our reality doesn't often line up with what Paul says, that the old is gone and the new has come. So how do we get there? How do we get rid of that old life? How do we live in that reality? 
Because it doesn't have to be that way of hanging on to the old, going back to the old life. Paul makes it seem like really it shouldn't be that way. Uh, we're going to look at a few verses in Romans 6, uh, Romans 6, 6 to 11, and they'll be up on the screen for you as well. Paul is continuing this theme of the old being gone and you being new. And he says this, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive in God, in Christ Jesus. Your old self has been crucified with God. Your old self is dead. And so when you go back to those old ways, you're going back to your dead self. And you're living in that. Putting that on rather than putting on God. Paul talks about this being alive in Christ as if it's, it's possible now. Not that we have to wait, but that, that old self has been crucified with God. Um, there's a, an analogy um, or a comparison in Shawshank Redemption. It's a very famous movie. Most of you have probably seen it. If you haven't, go home and turn on TBS and it'll be on soon, I'm sure. Uh, but it's a, a really, really great movie. And there's a character whose name is Red and he spends 40 years in prison. When he finally gets out of prison, we see him working at a grocery store. And he asks his boss if he can use the bathroom. And his boss pulls him aside and says, stop asking me if you can use the bathroom. You're allowed to use the bathroom. Just go to the bathroom. And I'll, I'll clean up Red's words here. But uh, he essentially, he says, for 40 years, I've been asking permission to go to the bathroom. I can't do it without the say-so from a boss. Red was a free man. He had freedom that was totally unfamiliar to him. So unfamiliar that the simplest, most natural task was impossible for him to understand without getting permission from someone else. I think spiritually, we're like red. Our old selves are dead and crucified. Um, we sang an amazing grace. My chains are gone. We're not captive to our sin anymore. We've been made free. The old is gone and the new has come. And what a, a, an awesome thing to have that freedom. But it's unfamiliar to us. We're not used to it. We don't know what it means to be alive in Christ, what it means to be a new creation. We're used to that old creation. We're used to the shackles. We're used to being enslaved by sin. So when we're faced with a choice, when things get difficult and we can lean in to God's grace or we can return and run back to the shackles of our sin, it's so easy for us to go back to our old ways. Because this, this freedom that we have is so new. But we have it. Red didn't have to ask to go to the bathroom. He could have just gone. But he wasn't used to that pattern of life. 
So how do we fix it? How do we unlearn our sin? Our sin nature? Do we pray more? Do we need to read the Bible more? Go to church more? No, we don't. All of those things have their place. Prayer is very good. Talking with God, being in relationship with someone, you talk with them. So we should be talking with God. We hear from God by being in God's word and we we fellowship with believers at church. We can encourage each other. But those things aren't some formula. God isn't asking us to check these things off your list and then you'll be made new. He says, you are made new now. We are free in Christ, alive in Christ. And all you have to do to experience this new life is to submit to it, to submit to the work of the Spirit, to become who you already are, a new creation. We, that pattern of life where we feel like life's responsibilities are on us, where we, it's up to me to provide for my family. It's up to me to get this promotion. It's up to me to get a good grade. It's up to me. It's up to me. It's up to me. That pressure builds on us and we bring that into our spiritual life, that it's up to me to get better. It's up to me to clean myself up. You didn't save yourself, so you can't sanctify yourself. You can't make yourself clean. That is the work of of the Holy Spirit. And so stop trying so hard to clean yourself and realize that God has already made you clean. Realize that you are free. Paul said the death he died, he died to sin once for all. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin and alive in God in Christ Jesus. Our earthly roles largely depend on us, but our spiritual role is completely independent of us. And we need to completely rely on God to do that transforming work. Have a willingness to give up control of your life and to submit to the finished work of Jesus Christ. And it's counterintuitive. We don't like giving up control. We, even when we know we're going to mess something up, at least we know we're in control. I'm going to be the one messing it up. At least I can blame myself. And so we don't want to give control to God because then if things go bad, who do I blame? What happens then? And we, we, feel, we don't trust God. We're so used to having control, but we need to let that go and to trust him. How will you become the spotless bride of Christ? If it's left up to you, you won't, but it's not. It's done already for you in the finished work of Christ. All you need to do is submit to it. We're going to... Uh, Partake of communion in a minute. Don't get up yet. But um, as we take communion, um, know that these are symbols, that the juice, the bread are symbols. Uh, We don't believe that there's anything magical or special about them, um, but that they are symbols. And what they represent is what's special. The body of Christ broken for you, his blood poured out for you. And so they're symbols of what has been done for you. But communion is also an invitation. I told you earlier of the story of how I asked Leah's uh, father for permission to marry her. And that tradition goes way back to daughters asking or fathers being asked uh, for their daughter centuries and centuries. Uh, Back in Old Testament times throughout even the New Testament, the way it worked is that if a man wanted to marry a woman, he would go to her father and uh, his family would present them with a gift. 
And that gift could be a financial gift, actual money, or it could be uh, animals, it could be uh, food, whatever it could be. And this, when we think about it, in today's culture, it can almost be offensive that you're buying the right to a woman like she's property. But there was, even in that time, there was a choice to be made by the woman. Um, So you would go, you would present your gift, the other family would accept it, and then they would throw a huge banquet where both families would come together and they would celebrate, they would have a, a feast, a dinner, and then at the end of the dinner, the potential groom would take his cup of wine and he would sip from it and then he would extend it to his potential bride. And he or she had a choice. Now, granted, there was a lot of pressure. We, your family has accepted this gift. We've just thrown a party. Uh, there's a lot of pressure on you. But at least in theory, the woman had a choice here that she could reject the cup and say, no, I'm not going to enter into this covenant with you, this marriage with you. And she would leave and it'd be a really sad ending to the party. Or she could take the cup. And she could drink of it. And so that is also the picture that we have with communion. That when at the Last Supper, when Jesus was with his disciples, and they've gone through three and a half years of craziness with Jesus, not knowing exactly what Jesus is doing, being wrong about a lot of things. Um, And Jesus has this dinner for them. And at the end of the dinner, he takes the cup and he says, This is my blood spilled out for you, the the blood of the new covenant. Take and drink. What they heard was a proposal. Will you enter into a covenant with me? Will you marry me? And they've been on this crazy ride, and at this point they were like, we're in, I guess. I mean, we've, we've made it this far. I, I haven't known what you're talking about before. I'm confused as to why you're proposing to me. But yes, and they took the cup. And so that invitation is presented to you this morning as well. So uh, uh, we can get up, leave your stuff where it is, and just form a circle around the auditorium. <clears throat> and we'll get the cups being passed out to you. And again, as, as the cups come around, just remember, if you uh, want to just observe this morning, you are more than welcome to do that. Just let the cups pass, and we'll know uh, that that's a sign that you're just going to observe this morning. Can I grab one of those? And as the, uh, once the cups are all out, we'll come around with uh, the juice and the bread, And as that bread comes around, you will have to break it. And let that be a reminder of what Christ did for you on the cross. That he paid the ultimate price for you. That despite you being unclean, unworthy, again, as Paul said in Romans, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While you were pursuing your own desires, While you were chasing after the things of this world, God was chasing after you. And he showed you his love by sending his son to die on a cross for you. 
where his body was broken for you. And then as the juice is poured into your cups, the blood of Christ was poured out for you. His blood that washes our sin, that makes us clean. But also, as we take and drink from the cup, it's an invitation. God is inviting you this morning, wherever you are, to be in relationship with him. And so when you take and you drink, you're accepting that invitation to be the bride of Christ. And the power, the responsibility to fulfill that role is not on you, but God will send his Holy Spirit to finish that work in you, that you will be a new creation. So as our uh, ushers come around and give you uh, the juice and we listen to this song, just reflect on the invitation that God has for you this morning.
So this morning, maybe you've been chasing after lovers who won't satisfy, things that won't satisfy. But this morning, through communion, Christ is inviting you into relationship with him. So take and eat, take and drink. Let's, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, again, we thank you for the love that you've shown us, the love that you poured out for us on the cross. We, we thank you that you are not a, a God who has given up on us when we fail, when we turn away from you. You are still pursuing us. You are still chasing after us, Lord. I pray that you would turn our hearts to you this morning, that no longer would we settle for the things of this world, the things that just leave us empty, hurt, and broken. But instead, Lord, help us to run into your arms. Help us to be comforted by you. Help us to know how much you love us. Help us to be satisfied in you, Lord. Everything we need, we can find in you. So I pray that we would stop chasing after the things of this world and that we would um, submit to you and that we would live in you. We would be dead to sin but alive in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>